1: Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukye, a senior editor at The Economist, and this week we'll explore the science that has been recognized in this year's Nobel Prizes. We'll hear from some of this year's winners and find out about their groundbreaking work, from the identification of an unknown virus, to the mysteries of the cosmos, to editing the code of life itself. The prizes were established in the will of Alfred Nobel, a 19th century scientist and entrepreneur who, among other things, was the inventor of dynamite. Each year, three science prizes for medicine or physiology, for physics and for chemistry are awarded on three consecutive days. Each is worth about a million dollars. I'm joined by The Economist science editor, Jeff Carr, and science correspondent, Alec Jha. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, Alec. Thank you. Hi, Ken. So, Jeff, let me start by asking, apart from the cash, what's all the fuss about? Why do people think the Nobels are so important? Why do they matter?
2: Nobel's prizes are about 120 years old now. And for a very long time, they were the only prizes uh, on the block. There have been some new candidates for prizes recently, but um, Nobel has the cachet. A lot of good work has been rewarded that way. It's an incumbent. They've got the, the first mover advantage and they're keeping it. And Alec... Does the media hubbub reflect the real importance within the scientific
0: community, for example, compared to the other prizes? I think there's no doubt that the awards given by the Nobel Committee are deserving of high honour and attention. And so if, if you look at it just that way, then it's it's probably a good thing that um, there's so much attention on quite arcane bits of science sometimes. That's not to say that the things that the Nobels award are the only things worth paying attention to. And I think that's one of the criticisms sometimes is that every Nobel winner that wins a Nobel deserves it, but not everyone who deserves a Nobel wins a prize. Let's step back a second and ask ourselves a bigger, broader question, which is while
1: the controversy courts, the literature and the Peace Prizes, there's oddities about the science Nobels too. It sometimes rewards work that was done 50 years ago, and other times work that was done in the last decade. Only three people can win each prize, and one can only
0: pose the question does this really reflect modern science? Well, the answer is no, <laughs> absolutely not. The, the idea that three people can be awarded for a modern scientific endeavour is, you know, it's quite laughable, actually, because no bit of science today is done without the help of hundreds of people, sometimes thousands. The Nobels are kind of stuck. But in a way, the, the fact that they've not changed or refused to change, despite all the criticisms, is partly a factor of the fact that they are so respected and they don't need to change. They still have that cachet. Other prizes are there trying to fill the gaps. So the Breakthrough Prizes, funded by various tech billionaires, give a bit more specific prizes on more modern ways of doing science, and they give more of them. And they're bigger as well, actually, $3 million each. And then there's the Kavli Prizes, which fund things like nanoscience and astrophysics. So, you know, other people with money are trying to get in on Nobel's Act. So the prizes have their quirks, but of course
1: what really matters is the scientific work they put under the spotlight. And the first of the science prizes to be announced on Monday morning is always for physiology or medicine.
3: The Nobel Assembly at Karolinski Institutet has today decided to award the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to Harvey J. Alter, Michael Horton, and Charles M. Rice.
1: Speaking at the official press conference, the Secretary General of the Nobel Assembly, Thomas Perlman, noted that he had some trouble reaching them at first. The phone started ringing. Charles Rice, one of the new laureates, speaking at the media event at Rockefeller University.
3: And um, initially I was, uh, well, I was irritated that uh, somebody would be calling at 4.30 in the morning actually didn't didn't pick up the phone and i started heading back to bed and um, it, it rang again and then there was this uh, voice with a swedish accent uh, on the phone and then i was pretty much convinced that this was definitely a, a crank phone call i think i woke them up they seemed very surprised and very very happy it was really wonderful
1: These three researchers have played crucial roles in understanding a lethal virus, hepatitis C. Hepatitis
4: B and C causes a chronic infection and is transmitted via the
1: blood. Gunilla Carlsen-Hedestam is a professor of infection immunology at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and on the Nobel Committee. Usually without
4: symptoms, but eventually leads to a chronic, serious condition that can result in cirrhosis and liver cancer. Once the disease has progressed this far, it can only be treated with costly and resource-intensive liver transplantations.
1: In 1976, the discovery of hepatitis B was awarded the Nobel Prize, but scientists knew that the virus did not account for all chronic hepatitis cases.
4: In the late 1960s, Harvey Walter was working at the N H blood bank. He embarked on an ambitious project to investigate the source of post-transfusion hepatitis. He realized that even after hepatitis B contaminated blood was excluded through testing, most hepatitis cases remained. He systematically tested the blood supply for the presence of known candidate viruses, and he tracked individuals. Through this work, he could show that an astonishingly high number of hepatitis cases could not be explained by the known viruses. At this point, he strongly suspected that there was another infectious agent causing the disease.
1: Alter's experimental results and the work of Michael Houghton of the University of Alberta in Canada confirmed this theory.
4: The breakthrough came in 1989 when Michael Houghton and colleagues working at Chiron Corporation used a combination of molecular biology and immunology-based techniques to clone the virus. Starting with the blood from an infected animal, the team introduced DNA fragments into bacteria and where each bacteria expressed an individual protein fragment. By screening with the antibodies, they could isolate one positive clone. They named the virus the hepatitis C virus.
1: The next stage of the hepatitis C discovery came from Charles Rice and his team at Rockefeller University in New York. They identified part of the viral genome that looked crucial to the infection process and investigated how the virus replicates.
4: He had created what he hoped would be a functional virus. When this genome was injected into the liver of chimpanzees, he observed clinical signs of hepatitis. An infectious virus was now present in the blood, and it persisted over time. This provided conclusive evidence that the cloned hepatitis C alone could cause the disease, And induce a productive infection?
3: You know, winning a prize is one thing, but I I would say that the prize for all of us just to have been a part of and a witness to going from, you know, basically a mystery virus to, you know, having cocktails of drugs that can eliminate the virus, usually without any side effects, in more than 95% of the people that are chronically infected that get treated. It's a rare treat for a basic
1: scientist. (laughs) Notable previous winners in physiology and medicine include Sir Alexander Fleming for the discovery of penicillin and Robert G.
2: Edwards for his work on IVF.
1: Jeff, why do you think that Horton, Alter, and Rice were chosen to join their ranks?
2: It's worthy work, and what's interesting about it is that this is quite a neglected disease. It kills 400,000 people a year, which is a hell of a lot for a, a known infectious disease in these times. And it infects about 70 million people. How has the Nobel Prize winner's work influenced how the disease can be treated?
1: And do you actually think it can be eliminated?
2: The actual medical importance of this discovery is as much for, the, for blood transfusion as for treatment, because a lot of people who were getting the disease in the past, were recipients of uh, blood transfusions that were infected and there was no test to screen them. Now we can screen blood before it's transfused, which means that the virus is no longer passed on that way. If you do happen to catch it, uh, there are now drugs that will treat it. But, of course, a lot of the people who have it haven't necessarily been properly diagnosed. If they have been diagnosed, they live in poor countries where the drugs are unavailable. So uh, it's a little bit like AIDS in some ways. The fact that the way it's transmitted gives a stigma to... Many of the people who fought it, unlike AIDS, there's not a big political lobby group behind it to to change those facts.
1: Alec, what's the significance of awarding a Nobel Prize for the discovery of a virus in 2020, a year defined by another virus that is now all too familiar?
0: I don't think there's any particular significance to that, if I'm honest. Um, This is a a discovery that is worthy of honour in any year. On the pandemic, though, uh, one thing that's interesting to say is that obviously this year, there's not been that many people actually in the Royal Academy of Sciences or the Nobel Assembly. And also, there won't be the official prize ceremonies in December. There's usually a week-long celebration in Sweden where the scientists are given all sorts of lectures and prizes by the King of Sweden. That's not going to happen this year because of COVID.
2: I was lucky enough to uh, attend the Nobel uh, ceremonies one year. It struck me as being a little bit like the Oscars, but with Swedish characteristics. <laughs> the end is not actually the giving of the medal. The end is the wonderful feast they have afterwards. Did you go to that too? Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> Thank you both. Coming up, we'll travel to the vast darkness of space and explore the tiniest tools that can rewrite the code of life.
4: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Next came the Physics Prize. Its winners can boast they share an honor with Albert Einstein and marie and Pierre Curie. Alec,
0: tell us about this year's winners. So there are three winners this year for the Nobel Physics Prize. Um, half of the prize goes to Sir Roger Penrose, who's a physicist and mathematician. He's one of the most prominent scientists in the UK. He's, he's almost 90 years old. He's uh, prominent in everything from you know very basic mathematics to cosmology to material science. He writes puzzles. He's he's a real polymath genius. And it's about time he won a Nobel Prize The other half of the Nobel Prize uh, goes to Andrea Gez, uh, who is a professor of astrophysics at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Reinhard Genzel. He's um, an astrophysicist at the University of California, Berkeley. And together, the three of them win for increasing our understanding of black holes. Sir Roger Penrose created some mathematical tools in the 60s that built on Albert Einstein's general relativity, the theory of gravity in the universe. And Sir Roger Penrose created a way of using general relativity to predict black holes in in our universe, so how they might actually form. And then Andrea Gez and Reinhard Genzel independently led teams starting in the 1990s to track the orbits of stars around uh, sort of an object that sits in the middle of the Milky Way, our home galaxy. And there they were attempting to show that the object at the middle of our galaxy was indeed a black hole. And they proved that with over 20 years of measurements. I had the pleasure of speaking to Andrea Gez just a few hours after she was told she'd won the Nobel. And she told me how she had been sucked into this field.
5: So I think my early fascination with astrophysics came from the moon landing. I was four when the people landed on the moon, and at that point I started to think about the universe, to think about you know what does it mean that people are on this object that's the moon that's so far away And then that evolved to real curiosity about the universe. And once you start thinking about space and time and the boundaries, you quickly come to black holes because black holes are objects that commingle space and time. I think there's no other, way to describe it, except a sort of intense curiosity.
0: I'm just curious how you got started with this particular project that led to the work that you're being awarded for today.
5: I put in the first proposal in 94, but it was turned down. And so it wasn't until 1995 that I wrote a proposal that was accepted to go forward. We launched and at the time, I think we thought it was going to be a three-year project. The state of technology at the time was such that what we understood that we could do was basically seeing the stars move in straight lines with images. So you could see that they were moving very fast by how fast they moved along those lines. But once we got three years into it, it started to become clear that people didn't accept just the speed test. So it was a big step forward from where people were before in terms of the knowledge or the evidence for a supermassive black hole, but people were punching holes in it. And it was also clear that if you kept going, you could probably measure acceleration, so the deviation from a straight line, and that would prove that the stars were gravitationally bound to whatever's at the center, which would put off some naysayers. So the accelerations got us to the second phase and brought us to roughly year 2000. And at that point, it became clear that the stars were on orbits that were short compared to a human lifetime. I mean, you have to remember that the sun takes 200 million years to go around the center of the galaxy. You're not going to watch an orbit on that scale. But if you get close enough to the center of the galaxy, and if there really is a black hole, then the closest stars could have orbits that are roughly a decade long.
0: So you found that the orbits of these stars were quite short. Um, what happened next?
5: Roughly at this next stage, we were advancing our technology to adaptive optics, where we, for the first time, could get spectra, so measuring not only images on the plane of the sky, but getting spectra that could tell us how stars would move along the line of sight, that missing third dimension. And what we found there was equally surprising. These stars were stars that were quite young, and in fact, shouldn't be there if there was indeed a black hole. So we were simultaneously coming up with the best evidence for the existence of a black hole by a factor of 10 million. And then you're finding things that are completely inconsistent with what you would expect in the environment of a black hole. So it's just been this constant opening up. You know, we started with what we thought was exciting and and clearly challenging because people didn't think we could do it. And I have to say, every year it's just gotten more and more interesting.
0: What are the next couple of mysteries around black holes that you want to sort of see falling?
5: Oh, gosh. You know, I really think it's interesting to ask. Where do we see the deviations of how Einstein's theory of gravity works around a black hole? So really getting these measurements that probe the theories of general relativity near these objects is a fascinating question. And there are a lot of experiments now that are designed and capable of capturing this question. And again, technology is evolving so quickly that I think we have the chance to get a much better picture of this relationship between black holes and their host galaxies.
1: Andrea Gez, Reinhold Genzel, and Sir Roger Penrose spent decades watching the stars, trying to observe an almost inconceivable object. Let's bring it back down to Earth. How does this increased understanding of black holes affect us
0: here? If anyone ever asks me about what the purpose of astrophysics is, it's just, it allows you to just think very massive thoughts about the universe. It's interesting, black holes, scientifically, we know very little about them until recently. And it's taken these three scientists who've won the Nobel to really show us that these things, A, exist, and B, that we can actually sort of measure their properties. The thing about black holes is they, they, they're very important in terms of the structure of the universe, how galaxies form. And so that gives us an idea of where it's going in the future, where it's come from, etc. The other thing about black holes is that these are the most extreme objects in the universe. This is the bit where all our known laws of physics sort of stop working. So in black holes, there's a point in the middle where the fabric of space-time is basically ripped. And so what that means is that you've got general relativity, the theory of big things in the universe, has to meet quantum mechanics, which is the theory of the very small. This is the only place in the universe where both those things break down. And so this is where we're going to find out the next phase of what physics is going to be all about. And Roger Penrose, he described the importance of black holes as... Because, you know, one of the laws of physics is the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the entropy of the universe is always increasing. And the entropy is sort of a measure of the randomness of the universe. Where does that randomness go? What does that mean? Uh, Well, actually, black holes are places of maximum entropy. They're they're places which store entropy in the universe. So understanding those will give us a sense of how this law evolves, what it means to have a direction to time. These are really big questions that we're barely starting to understand. Now, Professor Goetz was just the fourth female winner of a physics Nobel Prize. This is a
1: remarkable achievement, but does it highlight a wider problem in the diversity of scientists or
0: those that are publicly recognised? Alec? I mean, it does. I don't necessarily think it's up to the Nobel Committee to increase diversity. Having said that, they are aware of it and they acknowledge that um, there haven't been enough women and minorities. The other part of this issue is that Actually, there are scientists in the past, um, women, for example, who have been overlooked. And you could argue that there aren't enough women who who were in prominent positions. But actually, there were many women in prominent positions who've been overlooked and perhaps faced misogyny or were ignored for prizes for reasons other than the fact they were excellent scientists. So uh, an example is Lisa Meitner for the Physics Prize, Jocelyn Bell Burnell for the Physics Prize. These are famous examples. So which, which sort of cut against the idea that there are only just old white men who can win this prize. So it's, it's a conversation that's had every year. We should keep having it. Well, this year's Chemistry Prize was announced just before we sat down to record this podcast, and it's gone to
1: two women for the first time for this award, Emmanuelle Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, for their development of the CRISPR-Cas9 method of genome editing. We interviewed Jennifer Doudna for an episode just a few weeks ago. She explained her work. CRISPR is
6: an adaptive immune system and that means that it allows bacteria to identify viruses and learn about them through their genetic material and then create a genetic memory of infection that allows those bacteria to fight back and destroy viruses that try to infect the cells again. In a way, it's quite analogous to the way a human immune system works. But, big difference in how these systems actually operate, because in CRISPR, this is a system that requires short snippets of viral DNA to be inserted into the bacterial genome. It's a place where the genetic memory is created. One of the fascinating things about CRISPR-Cas9 is it's actually an antiviral system that works in bacteria. And to be clear, my lab did not identify this. This was work that was done previously by a number of microbiology laboratories. But what we did was to understand the molecular basis for this system. And in the end, how they could be harnessed for something rather different, namely engineering the genetic information in cells. It is a powerful technology for scientists around the world to change the genetic information in cells and thereby understand it. I think what's very interesting about CRISPR is that it's not the first or second or third technology for genetic engineering, but it's the best in a way, because it really allows precise control over the place in a DNA sequence and a chromosome, for example, in a cell where genetic information can be altered. It's also simple enough that laboratories around the world have been able to adapt it quickly for all sorts of different uses, including research in the laboratory, but also increasingly for applications in agriculture and in biomedicine. I think a great example of how CRISPR is being used today is to cure sickle cell disease, to change the genetic information in those red blood cells so that patients can be effectively cured of their disease. And I think it's sort of a harbinger of what will happen in the future, where we will have the ability to correct single genes that cause genetic disease using the CRISPR technology.
1: Jeff, can you give us a sense of the significance of Doudna and Charpentier's work?
2: Yes, it's extremely significant. It's the tool which makes biotechnology a technology uh, in a way people have been uh, twiddling with genomes for several decades but this allows you to do almost any editing job that you want to on a piece of dna so you can do quite detailed editing of microbes in order to turn them into chemical factors for drugs for example if you really wanted to go down the science fiction route you could imagine the creation of new sorts of organisms as well using this sort of technology so it's really quite significant
1: Now, Jennifer said that they didn't discover CRISPR-Cas9, that they developed and advanced its use. Why do you think the committee chose to name these two when there are so many people who contributed to the field?
0: There are lots of people who took the discoveries made by Charpentier and Doudna uh, and did interesting things with them. And I think that you, know, you have to decide at what point do you sort of draw the line? The one scientist who's often talked about in the same breath as these two is Feng Zhang of the Broad Institute in Harvard, MIT. And um, he really is one of the pioneers of genetic editing too and has won many awards with uh, Charpentier and Doudna. And uh, what he did was to take the ideas of gene editing and, and make them work in human cells. There is actually a bit of politics here, which is that Feng Zhang's um, institute at Harvard, MIT, is kind of locked in a bit of a patent battle with the others to sort of, because because whoever wins the patents for this technology is the license to print money, essentially, for the next uh, however many decades. So th- th- there's been lots of machinations and discussions and rewritings of history going on in the last decade about who actually discovered and developed gene editing. But there's no doubt that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier are deserving of this prize.
1: Now, Jeff, some people may be asking, why is this a chemistry prize rather than biology?
2: Well, it is a prize for a piece of chemistry. Manipulating nucleic acids and proteins is chemistry. But the importance of this work is not... If you like traditionally chemical, this is this is biology at a molecular level. It's not uh, like last year's prize, which was for the invention of the lithium-ion battery. That is straight chemistry. I think everybody would agree about that. It's a way of the various Nobel Committees adapting to the reality of modern science without actually having to change the names of the prizes. Which they probably couldn't do very easily because they are prescribed in Nobel's will.
1: Look, before I let you go, one question to both of you, real quickly. If you could add one additional category to the Nobel Prizes, what would it be? Jeff,
2: you first. Okay. Um I don't exactly know how you would categorise it, but the big missing uh, part of the Nobel is biology that doesn't count as medicine or physiology. So uh, things like ecology, psychology, animal behaviour, lots of plant biology. So there is a lot of biological science which is very rarely rewarded. Alec? So rather than create a
0: fourth prize, I think the one change that really needs to happen is um, the ability to give the prize to groups of people, collaborations. If you're talking about discovering gravitational waves, that was thousands of people on the on the LIGO collaboration, rather than giving it to the person who had the idea for the actual experiment. It, it, it takes a lot to get something like that built and done, and then statistically measured and and uh, papers published and all of those things so you could do a lot to reflect very modern science even within the current set of prizes by allowing the prizes to be given to groups which i believe the peace prize you can give it to groups uh, um, so so you know it, it, it is it, it is possible that's
2: an interesting idea it would be difficult to fit them all into the the, the feast <laughs> at the end of the week i think but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> jeff Carr,
1: alacha thank you very much thank you ken you're very welcome ken that's all for this week's Babbage. You can hear our interview with Jennifer Doudna in full in the Babbage episode from August 26th, entitled Viruses, Lords of Creation. And you can read Jeff's and Alex's analysis of all the discoveries we've talked about today at Economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, become one. Babbage listeners can sign up for the best introductory offer at Economist.com slash podcast offer. That's Economist.com slash podcast podcast offer. And the link is in the episode notes on your podcast app. One final ask. Please take a moment to give us a rating or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really matters a lot so people can enjoy the show, find the show, and we can get new Babbage listeners. I'm Kenneth Couquier, waiting and waiting for a phone call from Stockholm in London.
2: This is The Economist.